morning. Let's pray. Father God, we give to you this morning. We give to you our hearts and minds. We thank you for your word. We praise you for your holiness, your purity, your sinlessness. And Lord, we understand you've called your church to those very same things. As you are holy, let us be holy. We thank you, Lord, that we are washed clean by the holy and perfect blood of your Son. And we praise you this morning in his name. Amen. Brothers, imagine with me for a moment. You are to be married. And your bride-to-be has kept herself pure and undefiled just for you, just for her marriage to you. She is beautiful, and she is everything you ever dreamed of in a wife. You're out to dinner one night, and she goes to the powder room, and on her way back, you notice she's coming back to the table, and some other guy approaches her, comes up to her, he's talking to her, real sweet-like, buttering her up, lots of compliments, right? And he even, like invites her. She said, hey, let's go out for a night on the town. And obviously he has ill intentions towards her. He wants to, he, he desires to take her from you and, and have his way, right? And, and you see this going on from the table and you, you see in her face that she's actually considering it. And she starts to go out the door with this guy. How many of us would, would respond with, have a good night? enjoy. Just have her back by midnight. She might turn into a pumpkin or something. No! You want to keep her pure. She's your wife. Or your fiancé, your wife-to-be. She should be for you and you alone. Completely devoted to you, right? Can you imagine how God feels about you? how God feels about the church, this body right here in this room. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. God describes himself as he lays out those Ten Commands when he he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any images. Don't bow down and worship them because I am a jealous God. Ephesians. Chapter 5, verses 25 through 32, it shows us this unique and mysterious nature of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she, sorry, losing my place, Ah, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus died for her. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for you. He loves his bride so much. 
selfless, completely and utterly selfless love. Jesus cleansed her. He nourishes her. He cherishes her, according to this passage. The church itself is described as his own body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are the tool that Jesus uses for the spreading of his gospel, aren't we? We are his representatives, his ambassadors here on earth. We represent him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When somebody looks upon the church, when somebody sees us, what should they see? They should see Jesus. They should see Jesus' love for his body here in this place. And so we are called to live for him as a bride who has kept herself pure and set apart for the groom who dared to die for her. In our passage today, we're going to see that we must strive to preserve the church's unity and integrity that it might be as effective of an instrument as possible for the spreading of the gospel message. Understanding that we are immersed in a spiritual war where Satan prowls about looking for somebody to devour, looking for some means of wrecking havoc within the body in order to render us impotent, in order to make us ineffective in our witness. We need to be remembering that God is fervent. God is fervent about his bride, the church. And if we don't protect it and keep it pure, he will. In the words of C.H. Spurgeon, God in heaven is the dread supreme. He is to be feared. And as we read this passage, we need to understand that. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. We're going to read through chapter 5, verse 11. Acts 4.32 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether or not you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard of these things. A reading of God's word. Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. Verse 32 tells us that they were of one heart and soul. And they had everything in common. And that word for common is koina. It's the same word from which we get that word koinonia. And we saw that word, we studied about it back in chapter 2, verse 42. It's a a word meaning a sharing together. And it's a sharing together that goes far beyond mere relationship, mere, uh, mere Sunday morning getting together and shaking hands, talking sports and weather. It's a group of people who are meeting one another's spiritual needs. Their social needs, their tangible needs. They had a fellowship that went deeper. They had they they were involved in one another's lives. It's a fellowship that I think we're unused to here in America. It's completely different from our individualistic society, with a casual relationship with God and His people. I was reading an article just this week about foreign pastors who have come to America. And one of them noted that while the church here is more casual and very friendly on the surface, all real relationships are more at an arm's length. He's used to being able to go over to people's houses, knock on their door and say, hey, how you doing? Let me, and, and being invited in. And, and he found that over here, you don't do that. And, and he was disappointed to see that here. Real relationships are what we need. People today in America even seek out purposefully a church where they won't be noticed, where they won't have to serve, where they won't have to stick out. And the early church, as we see in here, they wouldn't let you do that. People say that this was a unique time in the life of the church and that that this is descriptive and not prescriptive of the church today. Was it? Unfortunately, maybe that's the way we're taking it. Maybe maybe so. As our church, as, as the church in America reflects more and more the society around us, We've called it trying to reach people becoming by becoming more like the world, but, but the church is reflecting more the society around us as opposed to the depth of unity that is prescribed for us throughout Scripture, not just described for us here in this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, 
If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture goes on. Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, it, it reminds us to seek ways to stir up one another to good works, not neglecting that fellowshipping together, that coming together, that unity that we are to have in meeting and encouraging and building one another up. Over and over and over throughout Scripture, the oneness, the unity, the together, the caring for each other, the lifting each other up is described and prescribed for us. And the early church had caught on to this idea. I I need a volunteer, a, a hapless, witless volunteer. Come here. Ryan, come here. Everybody watch Ryan, okay? Did you see what he did? You might not have seen it because he didn't do too much. But, but he, he took his toes out of danger. He, he kind of did, did that, right? Did you see that? He didn't do too much because he kind of trusts me. I'm not sure why. But his toes didn't move themselves, did they? His eyes saw the hammer descending. His leg heard the message. His leg moved those toes. The whole body reacted. Just like the early church had this idea that whatever hurts you hurts me. We're all part of the same body. And then when we see part of the body in danger, when we see something that's about to be hurt or hurting, the whole body should react. The leg should, the eye should see it. The leg should move it. The toes, get them out of the way. That's the unity that we have in this body or should have, which is prescribed and described for us in Scripture. If you are hungry, so am I. If you are hurting and wandering from the flock, I can no more watch you go from here easily than I can watch my arm drop off and go, oh, no big deal. Surely I shouldn't be the cause of your hurt or your pain. Surely I shouldn't 
be able to easily downplay the value of you and what you add to this church family. Negative words about you shouldn't easily come to my lips. They loved each other. They shared life with each other. They were devoted to breaking bread together daily. Do you remember that from chapter 2, verse 46? Even though they, they were devoted to this, they were devoted to each other, even though from a worldly perspective, they might not have had anything more in common with each other than just Jesus Christ. Do you remember the description of people at Pentecost? They were from all the farthest reaches of the world. They were all different people. They all had different jobs, different hobbies, different cultural values. Some artists, some contractors, some teachers. They were all coming together. One heart, one voice, one mind. And this kind of unity... I believe it comes from a fresh grasp of the depth of their sin. A fresh grasp and an understanding of the richness of the love and forgiveness that we have that has been lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. Many in Jerusalem at that time would have had a hands-on part of the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter had a habit of reminding them of that very thing. Uh, chapter 2, verses 22 through, tw- through 23, it says, This Jesus you crucified and killed. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, You killed the author of life. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, Peter says to the whole Sanhedrin, the leadership of Israel, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. You did it. You did it. You did it. Don't put it on anybody else. I did it. It was my sin that took Jesus to the cross. It's always personal. The early church realized that the death of Jesus Christ is always personal. They knew what they deserved. They had a very fresh grasp of the depth of their sin because they had been there. They had seen Christ on that cross. They saw the crowd. They might have even been in the crowd. And they, they, they realized that they deserved no better than eternal damnation yet they found themselves undeservedly with the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that brought them just a joy and a freshness and a unity that they hadn't had before. They had been taken out of darkness and into light. They understood the good news of the gospel because they had a a comprehension of the bad news of their sinfulness. And we need to have that same comprehension, that same understanding, that same freshness, that that in our sin we are dressed in that same feces-covered clothes that Joshua the high priest is described as being dressed in before God in Zechariah chapter 3. That, that our sin deserves eternal punishment in the face of an eternal and perfect God. That our sin, my sin, took Jesus to the cross as if my own hands had driven in those nails into his hands and into his feet. Now look to your left. Go ahead, look to your left. 
Look to your right. Look at that person you don't like. No, don't do that. Look at the one who offended you six months ago. Do you know who you saw? You saw a child of God. A person of value in the eyes of God. Clean and forgiven. Sins washed away by the blood of a Savior who is ready and willing to die for them. Who did the exact same thing for you and for me. Let this be what unifies us as a church, as a body. Knowledge of the value of every believer in Christ. Every person sitting here in this room at this time, every believer in Jesus Christ has the same value in his eyes, the value of his precious holy blood shed on the cross. We should be indivisible because Christ is indivisible. Knowledge that the toes are just as important to the body as the ears or the eyes. Because Jesus died for them, he sees value in them. Everything we have is but by the grace of God. Every gift, skill, talent, ability, everything we have that is tangible is to be used for his glory. And I tell you what, his glory is seen primarily in the church unified. In the church unified. And we must strive for this unity. Not because it is compulsory or has been programmed out for us. We, we should not be unified only when there's a church event or, or a church picnic that, that kind of makes us come together, that draws us together. Their unity, their fellowship was centered on Jesus Christ, not a program. Their giving was not required of them, unlike a lot of the other communal groups in the culture at the time where they would say, you have to give X amount in order to be a part of this group. You have to sell all these things in order to be a part of this group. This was not forced upon them. We, we can see that they still owned houses. They broke bread in them, right? Together, daily. They still owned land, as, as Peter tells Ananias, that his land belonged to him before he sold it, and the money was still his after he sold it, that he could do what he wanted with it. Our unity should not be programmed or compulsory, but should come from hearts and minds that so understand our relationship with Christ that we want to willingly live it out with one another. Are we? Can, can you think of one, two, three ways that you are personally living out the unity that we see in this passage? Entering into another person's life. Inviting them into your own for the sake of mutually building up one another in your walk with Christ. Christ being able to share freely with one another, build each other up? Do we strive for this unity? Why is it that the Scripture encourages us to, to a unity in the body? Why is that? 
See, this unity makes the church effective for the mission to which we have been called. That mission to to fill the gap, to spread the gospel, to spread that message of the kingdom of God and, and the forgiveness in Jesus Christ, to be witnesses and ambassadors of his person and works. Look with me at uh, chapter 4, verses 32, and I'm going to read a little bit. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners, lands or houses sold them, did you see what was sandwiched in the middle there? We, we could have left verse 33 out entirely, right? And it still would have read with, with good flow, talking about now the full number of those who believed were of one heart soul, so no one said that anything belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, right? Could have taken verse 33 out. And, but what, what happens right out of the midst of this unity? What, what happens, what comes out of this kind of unity? This Out of this unity comes great power. The testimony of Jesus Christ through the, the apostles, great grace was upon them all, coming right out of the middle of all this unity. The, the peace and unity of a church is closely tied to its effectiveness as an instrument of the gospel. The world should look into the church and say, wow, that is love lived out. I want to be a part of that. But Satan doesn't want the world to look in and say, wow. He wants them to look in and have ammunition against us. He wants people to look in and say, I have good reason not to join that body. Many people point to the hypocrisy of the church as a reason that they don't want to come to Christ. They don't want to have anything to do with the church. Mahatma Gandhi Having seen this hypocrisy himself, he was turned away from a church in India because he was not of the right caste and he wasn't white enough. And he said, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. I'm not saying he's entirely right in saying that. But do you see what happens when people see real hypocrisy in the church? They, get, they, they look in and they say, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. We must pray hard and strive for unity and integrity in our personal relationships, one with another in this body, here in the church, because we are in a spiritual war. Satan will grab the first person he sees who takes their eyes off of Christ and puts them on themselves. He will use that to weaken the witness of the church. Chapter 5, starting at verse 1, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? 
You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether or not you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And great fear came upon the church when they heard about these things. Satan is active. How is it that Satan filled his heart, tempted him, drew him in this way? In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, what did Satan draw their hearts to? They they looked at Joseph called Barnabas. They saw what he had done. They saw the honor that he received. He was called son of encouragement for, for all he had done in the church. And they wanted that honor among men. And they sold the property to get the, to get the honor, and, and yet they retained some of the money. So it was honor and money. Those are the things that they were looking for as they did this. Desires that are not too far from any of us today. We all have our own areas of temptation, don't we? It was a heart issue that brought discord to the body. As within the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, Jesus took second place to money and honors. We are a people torn, aren't we? Here in this world, seeking comfort for our bodies and distraction for our minds. We all do it. Yet yet we are called to a vigilant, spirit-filled journey like we were talking about last week, of gospel seed planting. Which one is going to win in our lives? Which one is winning in your life today? We need to protect our hearts as, as we are constantly faced with new choices, decisions, and temptations in our lives. We need to ask ourselves three questions. Where is my heart? Why am I doing this? And how am I going to get it? Where is my heart? Where are my eyes? What is it that I'm focused on? What is it that I want? Is it money? Is it honor? Is it a new car? Is it a new job? Is it my way? Often these things aren't necessarily bad. We need money to buy groceries to feed the kids, right? Selling the land wasn't bad. Giving to the church was not bad. Joseph had done these things too. It was their heart that was wrong. It was their reason for doing it that was wrong. And we need to check ourselves in every decision, in every choice, in everything we do and and say, where is my heart? Why am I doing this? Is it for the glory of God or for my own good and my own glory? Is it to make me look good in front of all of you? Or, or is it because we want, I want to honor God? Because I want to draw attention to Him. If it's truly for the glory of God... Is there some way I can be sure that that is manifested in my actions? That I can, I can use this to draw others' attention to him. 
If I get money, if I get honor, if I get X or Y, how can I use it as an opportunity for the Lord's glory and not my own? How am I going to get it? How am I going to get that thing? As I seek out the things I want, will I need to weaken my testimony of Jesus and what he's done in my life in order to achieve it or get it? Will I have to downplay who he is in my life in order to get that money or that position or whatever it might be, that new toy? Is my love for Jesus so central to my being that his love for me is the driving force behind all my decisions and all my desires? Or am I willing to defame or defraud my church family, God's own body, in order to feel or or get what I want? Let's remember that when we defraud or hurt the body, we are actually defrauding or hurting the spirit of God, God himself. We are actually grieving God. Let's, let's have that bigger picture of, of what, when we are talking about other people or when we're doing things. Let's have that bigger picture of how this relationship with one another affects that relationship. The one with God. The heart's desires of Ananias and Sapphira led them to lie to God and to test his love for his church. And they quickly found out that he is a jealous God. Zechariah 8.2 says that he is jealous unto wrath. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. The Almighty God, the Lord of hosts, for whom and by whom all things have been created, the great and omnipotent dread supreme. Did you hear that? The dread supreme. He is jealous for his bride. The church for whom he was willing to take on flesh and then take that flesh all the way to the cross. We must protect the unity and integrity of the church, lest we should reap the consequences of our actions. Ananias and Sapphira were not outside the church body. They were not non-believers. They were members. They were a part of his bride, not to be taken away by someone else. Judging from the reaction of the people as they were struck with fear, they were these two were probably stalwart members of the body. They were probably people who served and who were known by others. And in verse 5 and verse 11, it says that the people were in shock. They were in fear. What's going on here? In churches today, we talk a lot about love. Do we fear God enough to take action? Do we fear God enough to maintain unity, to refrain from things that would cause the world to look in upon the church with disdain? Remember that God disciplines those he loves, Hebrews chapter 12. And in a moment of weakness, these two stepped away from the Lord and made him second place and and defrauded the body, and the Lord was brought to jealousy, to wrath, 
And he would not allow them to continue to walk in that way because they were his children. He did not want Ananias and Sapphira to walk in that way. He didn't want that for them, so he took them. He disciplined his children. Nor would he want or allow the young church to see them as getting away with something like this. It was a sign for them and a remembrance for us that he is the living God to be feared. He is good and able and just and true. He is passionate for his bride to keep us pure as an instrument in his hand with integrity necessary to share and to ambassador Christ on this earth, to talk about his gospel in a way and represent his gospel in a way that others will look in and say, there's something to that. God will discipline those he loves. And sometimes we, we reap the tragedy of sin around us, don't we? In the form of trial and tribulations and, and other times when we've put Christ beneath ourselves, we have to reap the discipline that the Lord will execute upon us. Let us be careful to be those who maintain such a vivid realization of what he's done for us, that that death on the cross. We we keep that cross at the forefront of our minds. When we wake up in the morning, we pray to Christ. We we acknowledge him before we even step foot out of that bed. We have that, that vivid knowledge of him that drives us to a humble unity with others in the church, valuing one another in Christ. Let us be those who keep our eyes on Christ. Keep him first. Don't let him become second, not allowing our eyes to wander to our selfishness or the things of the world, that we would be able to maintain that unity with integrity, that we would be able to be effective tools to fulfill our call, to fill the gap, to share the gospel message in our soil, in that sphere of influence lives that we have. Asking ourselves constantly, what is it that I want? Why am I going to get this or do this? How am I going to get it? Do I have to somehow set aside my integrity with Christ to do this or get it? Let us be those who keep the church pure, designed, desiring to love one another as Christ loved the church completely selflessly. In order that Alden Union in order that we here would be effective for the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for us as your church body, your church body, your own flesh. Help us to love each other. Help us to value one another. Help us to enter into each other's lives and let them into our own, not hold them at arm's length. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We need your Spirit. Apart from your Spirit, we are weak. We are tempted. Help us not to shut you out of our everyday life. Help us to to wake up with you and go to sleep with you, to to have you with us through the entire day, to, to value that. We know the God of heaven, and you are jealous. Help us to maintain purity. Help us, Lord. We need you. We want to be yours. We want to spread your gospel, and we want to be effective for you. Pray that you help us to grow as a church body here at Alden. 
in this unity, in this togetherness, in this oneness. And we pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.